0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, we're continuing our slow and systematic study through this letter from Paul to the church of God in a Greek city called Corinth. Tonight we'll continue our series in chapter 10 in particular. If you will remember, Paul is in the middle of an extended argument that has arisen over whether or not Corinthian believers could eat meat that had been sacrificed to the false gods in pagan temples in Corinth. Paul's basic argument was that the false gods really are nothing and meat is just meat, so you're free to eat the meat if you want, or you're free to abstain if you want. And this is his general principle that applies to anything not explicitly condemned in scripture. If it's not necessarily unlawful, then you're not bound in the matter. But he doesn't just leave it there. In our passage tonight, he gets to what appears to be a foundational problem for some of the Corinthian believers who wanted to partake of the pagan temple meat. As we'll see, the issue is not the meat. The heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. The problem wasn't merely that they were hungry and they wanted some food and the temple meat was a way to satisfy that. The problem was deeper than their belly. The problem was at their core, at the level of desire. The problem was a problem of idolatry. And when there is a heart level idolatry, we will see that there are all manner of wicked fruits that flow from that. But let's get, let's begin by reading our passage. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, but we'll only focus on verses 6 and 7 tonight. Hear the word of our Lord. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Let's pray. Holy Father, we come to you in need. We see the commands. We see that we are to flee immorality and idolatry, Lord. And we need your help to do it. We need help. We need the help of your Holy Spirit. We need the, the wisdom of Christ himself. We need, we need the gospel. The good news that you give your people new hearts, and from that position of new hearts, new proper desires, Lord, we can actually free, be free from idolatry. I ask that you would do this through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we noted a first point in this series, in this passage, from verses 1 to 5, that Paul wants us to see the Old Testament experiences as an illustration. Their experiences were meant to be an illustration for us. He mentioned the cloud and the pillar and the sea and the rock, all of which reference the Exodus story and the subsequent events from Exodus 14 to 17. But tonight, we'll move on to a second section, verses 6 We'll make it through 7, and we'll see the examples Paul gives as a warning. The Old Testament examples given as a warning. Look at verse 6 again. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. He says something similar in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. God made sure that these stories were preserved in scripture so that future believers would have examples, both positive and negative, of what to do and what not to do. Paul is reminding the Corinthian believers of these stories for a purpose, which he explicitly states in verse 6, that we might not desire evil as they did. The NIV renders it that we might not have our hearts set on evil as they did. But I think the old King James gets to the nub of the issue and it says that we should not lust after evil things as they also lust it. The issue here is not merely one of desire nor even intensity of desire. Desire itself is not inherently evil, but desire can become evil when one of two things happen. We can either desire something that is itself evil, Or we can desire something that in itself is not necessarily evil, but desire it to a point that we would sin to get it or to keep it. Let me say those two things again, and I'll give us some examples. Desire becomes evil when either, A, I desire something that is evil, or I desire something that's not necessarily evil, but desire it to a degree that I would sin to get it or keep it. Now, the first one's pretty clear. If I desire something that's necessarily evil, then that desire is itself sinful, even if I don't act on it. If I desire to murder someone or to steal from them or I lust after someone, those things are clearly wrong and they stem from ungodly, impure, wicked desires. They are the fruit of some remaining wickedness that is within me. But the second condition is a little more complex. That's when I desire a good thing, but I desire it in a way that I'd sin to get it or to keep it. It's like a single person who desires a spouse. That's a good and godly desire. But if I desire a spouse so much that I would lie about myself to try and get married, or I might steal, or try to steal a spouse from someone else then that's clearly desire gone wrong it's a disordered desire to use older theological language it's a desire that has transgressed into the realm of sinful lust and we have this temptation all the time for example you you may have a desire for a good reputation And that's a good desire. Proverbs says that a good name, a good reputation, is better than riches and better than silver or gold. We should all seek to maintain a good reputation. However, if the desire for a good name leads us to then lie about our performance or to deceitfully embellish my resume or to fudge the numbers on this form or that report, then my desire to have a good name has led into sinful idolatry. Or maybe we frame an example in a different way. Maybe you desire to be seen as a good parent, which can be a godly desire, but it leads you to be harsh with your children. You're so afraid that they might misbehave in public and make you look bad that you tighten down the thumbscrews on them and drive them into exasperation lest they goof off and spoil the facade of you being such a wonderful parent who has it all together. Any good desire can be perverted. And that's one of Satan's most effective tactics. If he can't get you to desire the wrong thing, then he'll get you to desire the right things wrongly. If he can't entice you to outright sin, then he'll entice you to desire the right things, but in the wrong ways. Back to the issue in Corinth, Paul seems to be suggesting that some of these people were right in their understanding of the issues. The eating of the idol meat wasn't necessarily sinful. But they were actually being led astray through the pagan temple worship. They weren't merely eating meat for their bellies. They were desiring something more. And we can do the same if we're not careful. Consider your own heart. What kinds of desires are swirling around in there? You often ask yourself that question. You should. When you find yourself angry or frustrated, ask yourself what it is you're desiring in that moment. When you're fearful or ashamed or depressed or impatient or irritated, what is it that I'm desiring in that moment? The answers to these questions aren't always cut and dry. We have godly motives mixed with ungodly ones. And many times we need the help of other brothers and sisters to see the desires of our hearts more clearly. But the point for us is clear. Consider your own heart. Proverbs says, keep your heart with all vigilance because from it flow the springs of life. Everything we do in life everything we feel, everything that we do, we say, all of it is downstream from the heart. It's downstream from desire. And often, God will bring frustrations or trials in this life in order to reveal that we've been longing after the wrong things. Or maybe we've been longing after right things but in wrong ways. He'll bring a tough diagnosis to reveal the heart of someone who's been sinfully lusting after health, a desire to remain perpetually youthful. Maybe he'll bring a bad grade to someone whose desire for a perfect GPA has become an idol. Maybe he'll bring a stubborn child into a home of a parent who trusts in his own strength. We need to remember through it all that God always afflicts in order to heal. He bruises in order to bless. God is a skilled surgeon, cutting to cure, not cutting to crush. Scripture says he will not snuff out a smoldering wick and a bruised reed he will not break. He knows your frame, he knows your condition, and he knows the precise treatment needed in order to expose the root Of your heart problem and that's part of what he's doing in each of these situations in each of your trials he's allowing us to see a little bit of what's going on in our hearts he's exposing a little bit of the root he's showing us what we had would never have seen never have noticed never have corrected if the trial or affliction had not exposed our heart's desires See, God in his kindness shows us when our desires are out of whack. They're imbalanced. He does that because he knows there's only one thing that is the proper root desire. There's only one thing that will satisfy the desires of our hearts, and that is communion with him. God in Christ is the only thing that can meet the desires of your heart. Have you thought of that? Every possible good desire finds its ultimate satisfaction in him. Are you lonely and desire companionship? Jesus is the best friend you can have. His companionship is not limited by time or space or even health. He says in John 15 that greater love has no man than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. Jesus calls us friends even at the cost of laying down his own life. Or maybe you desire a good name, a good reputation to be thought of well. Jesus meets that desire too. Listen to some of the names that Jesus gives to his people. Beloved, conqueror, mine, lovely, cherished, prized, protected, redeemed, saved, faithful. These are just a few of the multitude of names that Jesus gives to you when you come to him. Or maybe you desire security. Maybe you want to be free from fear. Free from the what-ifs. Free from the unknowns of the future. Free to rest. Well, in Jesus, you find satisfaction for that desire, too. For by faith in Jesus you are granted a future that is guaranteed, a future destination that is secure. Your promise that not a hair falls from your head without the all-powerful heavenly Father knowing about it. Your promise provision for everything needful. You're promised that Satan himself has been disarmed against you and that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You promised eternal blessedness and security in the everlasting arms of your Savior. And no created being can ever distract God's attention from you, which is fixed on you for your eternal good. Romans 8 tells us that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or rulers, nor things present, nor things in the future, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's security. You want to be secure, come to Jesus. He's the only one that can meet that desire fully. Do you have good desires? Jesus can fulfill them. All you must do is receive him. Trust in his promises as they are extended to you in scripture. Hear of this one, trust in him, and he will fulfill the desires of your heart. And if you find that your desires aren't always what they should be, well, Jesus can help you with that too. Maybe you've felt yourself get sinfully angry at someone that you love. Maybe you've greedily coveted things that don't belong to you. Maybe you've lusted after what you know is not yours to have. Whatever the sinful desire, the Bible says that Jesus can help. And He can help because He promises exactly what we need. Our desires don't bubble up from nowhere. They don't arise from nothing. They come from a heart. And Scripture says that we're all born with a heart condition. We come on this planet with a heart that's tainted by sin. It's curved in on ourselves. We're prideful in our disposition. We're warped in our desires. We desire the wrong things, and we desire them wrongly. But Jesus knows the condition of our heart, and He's addressed our condition. And He does it not by just a little tweak here, a little redirection there. He offers us a new heart. When we're united to Christ by faith, we're granted a new heart of flesh that replaces the old heart of stone with its disordered desires. And in our calling and union with him, we're given the one thing we need most. The seat of our soul is solved. The core of our condition is, is cured. And if everything else is downstream of the heart, that's good news for the rest of our lives and all of our actions. We're renewed by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. The spring has been purified and all the streams can now run untainted. We can actually grow in holiness. And as we grow in Christ and we're led by His Holy Spirit, we'll see that our desires can be redirected in godly ways and can actually be fulfilled. Christ continually reorders our desires to right and godly things through His Word and through His Spirit. And He helps us continually pursue those right and godly things in the right ways. That's another way of saying that Jesus helps to make us holy even at the level of desires. And that gives us hope. It gives us a message of hope to give to the world. You see, the world says that your identity is the sum total of your desires. Whatever you want in that moment, that's what you are. If you're a man and you want another man, that's what you are. And to try and be anything different than that desire is wrong, the world says. If you're a man who desires to be a woman, then that's what you are, and to try and change that desire is wrong, the world says. But to be held bound by sinful desires is a terrible slavery. To be captive to your lust is to be drug off in chains that you have no power to break. You're no longer in control. But praise be to God that we don't have to be enslaved to our desires. We don't have to find our identity in what we're lusting after in the moment. Christ offers freedom to any who would come to him. Have you tasted of that freedom? Do you know what it means to have your soul liberated to pursue righteous and godly things with a clear conscience? To be able to experience peace of mind and purity of heart. To direct your desires rather than having your desires directing you. If that's appealing to you, then trust in this Christ that is before you. Read of him in his word. Nobody else spoke like him. Nobody lives like him. No one can cure like him. His freedom is perfect and his liberation is, is free. All you must do is receive it. Trust in this one who has conquered sin and death. If he's overcome the grave itself, do you not think he can overcome your disordered desires and reorient your heart in righteousness? And once he's overcome your sinful heart, he can plant within you new desires which find their goal in him. He will become the apple of your eye, He will be your desire fulfilled, which Proverbs says is like a tree of life. Come to this Jesus. Trust in him and have your desires fulfilled unlike any created thing can do for you. Jesus is the one that orients our desires. Come to him. Now that was a bit of an excursus on desire in the heart. But I think it's a hugely important topic. Now back to 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says that these Old Testament stories were written for our benefit that we might not desire or lust after evil evil, like the Hebrews did in the wilderness. And then in verse 7 he begins to list specific examples for us to avoid. Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it was written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul's first example of of many in series is the sin of idolatry, and he quotes specifically from Exodus chapter 32. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Exodus 32. It's the classic biblical text illustrating idolatry, and we'll spend the rest of our time tonight looking at it. Where after the exodus, the Ten Commandments have been given. Moses has gone up onto the mountain. Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation, saying, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose to play. I'm going to take the rest of our remaining time to make some observations from this text, observations about the nature of idolatry, which I think will be helpful in diagnosing idolatrous desires and tendencies within our own hearts. The first observation idolatry deceives. Idolatry deceives. It deceives us specifically to thinking that we are the standard. Look at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was delayed in coming down the mountain, they thought that Moses was taking a little too long. They didn't want to be delayed. They didn't want to wait on the Lord. They didn't need to listen to God's revealed commands to wait at the base of the mountain. They could do what they wanted because they were the ones That knew best. You see the self-deception there. Idolatry always does this. It starts often with a question, like the serpent in the garden. Did God really say? And then, if not corrected, that question, that idolatry, inevitably moves to, it doesn't really matter what God said. Because idolatry makes us the standard. It rejects God's word, God's standard. It deceives us to think that we know better than God. Second observation about idolatry. Idolatry costs. Idolatry is costly. Look at verse 2. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. And so all the people took off the rings of gold and they brought them to Aaron. The most precious material possessions they had, the gold jewelry, was taken from them. Ironically enough, every bit of this gold jewelry was a gift from the Lord himself. You remember the, the Hebrews? They were able to plunder the Egyptians on their way out of town. So whatever they had of any value came from God's doings. That's what idolatry does. It perverts God's good gifts, and it eventually costs us that which is precious. An alcoholic idolizes the bottle, and it ends up costing him his most precious things, like his health and his relationships. A greedy person idolizes money, and the cost to him is that he ends up never satisfied with what he has whether it's one dollar or a billion dollars. A fornicator idolizes sensual pleasure, but it costs him the thing his heart actually desires, true communion with someone who loves him and whom he loves. Idolatry is costly. Sometimes it costs very quickly, like someone driving 100 miles an hour on the interstate. Sometimes it costs very slowly but it costs the cost is inevitable third third observation about idolatry idolatry robs idolatry robs specifically it seeks to rob god of his honor look at verse 4 And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with a graving tool, and he made a golden calf. And they said, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Doesn't it seem so comically foolish from our vantage point? That the Hebrews would look at a statue of a cow and think that it was the cow that had led them by a pillar of fire and a cloud, it was a cow that had split the Red Sea and made dry ground. It was a cow that had wiped out the strongest army on the planet. It's, it's lunacy. And yet that's what idolatry does. It seeks to rob God of the honor and praise that was due to him and ascribe his glorious character, his work, to another created thing. Idolatry says it wasn't Yahweh who saved me. It was this bit of creation. And idolaters do the same thing today. It wasn't God who provided all of your material prosperity. It was market forces. It was blind luck. It was my business savvy, my investing skills. It wasn't God who enabled you to get the job. It was your hard work and determination, your faithfulness. It wasn't God's mercy that granted you an escape from judgment. It was the fact that you really weren't that bad off to begin with. See how the deception comes in? Slowly seeking to rob God of the honor and praise that is due to him. Fourth observation about idolatry. Idolatry enslaves. Idolatry enslaves. Specifically highlighted here, it enslaves us to pagan worship. Look at verses 4 and 5. And he received the gold from their hand, he fashioned it with a graving tool, he made a golden calf, and then he said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. It wasn't enough that they had created an idol. They had to bow down to it. They had to worship it. They couldn't just look at it, they couldn't just marvel at it, they couldn't just enjoy it, they needed to kneel. And so they built an altar. It's part of our nature that we will worship something. We are worshipping creatures, and when it's not God we worship, then we're fine, we're going to be enslaved and worship to something or someone else. If you worship the idol of money, then you then you will worship by giving your attention your time, your devotion to making more of it and securing what you already have. If you worship the idol of praise, then you will be enslaved to bow down at the feet of the men whose praise you seek. Your lips will be enslaved by flattery in order to satisfy the God of your own reputation. If you worship at the idol of your own children, then you'll be bound to spend your time and your effort and your money in ways that worship and honor them and their desires rather than spending all of it to the honor of the Lord and to the honor of His desires. Whatever the idol in your life, it will command your praise. You'll be bound to it. You'll be enslaved by it. Fifth observation about idolatry. Idolatry pretends. Idolatry pretends. It pretends to be righteous. It seeks to mimic that which is truly holy. See, idolatry always has a moral bar. And it always has a ceremony. Verse 6, They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. The cow didn't tell him to do that. Spoiler alert. The Hebrews have done the unthinkable. They have rejected the God who had miraculously saved them. They have instead fashioned a golden statue and ascribed to that statue divine action and divine honor. And now they're waking up early, the text says. They give up their sleep in devotional, intentional exertion towards this charade of holiness. They go before the golden animal statue and ironically enough slaughter animals to the statue of an animal. They are in control of and taking the life from creatures in the image of the creature they're worshipping. Do you see the image of futility in that exercise? They're in control of the thing that they're sacrificing. It looks just like the thing they're in control of. Gives them the illusion of control, actually. It's also interesting that when someone or when a people reject God, they don't reject all ritual. They don't reject all ceremony. Even pagan idolatry has ceremonies. Roman Catholics have their rites and their extra-biblical sacraments. Muslims have their five pillars. The religion of Hollywood has its ceremonies of award shows and sacrifices of allegiance to the God of fame. The feminists in our day have their idol of abortion and their molech of Planned Parenthood. Even the atheists have their God of human reason and their rituals of allegiance to Charles Darwin or Immanuel Kant or whatever philosopher. But lest we think the problem is merely outside of the church whole denominations and whole churches can have idolatries too. Recent revelations in evangelical churches and corrupted leadership has made that clear. Backroom glad-handing, political posturing, domineering leadership, influential kickbacks are sadly found in the church and in denominations just as much as they're found outside of the church. And that's because idolatry isn't just something for the Canaanites out there. Idolatry is an inside job, and the Hebrews illustrate that well for us. And wherever that idolatry is found, it pretends to be holy, and it mimics genuine righteousness, or seeks to. Finally, we've seen that idolatry deceives, it costs, it robs, it enslaves, it pretends, lastly idolatry celebrates idolatry celebrates look at the end of verse 6 and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play they sat down to eat and drink meaning they had their ceremonial feasts and having once celebrated the worship of their newfound god they then rose to play having satiated their appetites and assuaged their consciences through this ritual performance they got up Having satisfied their desires for worship, however misdirected, frivolity ensued. We've done the ritual of our own making. Now our conscience feels cleared. Now we are ceremonially pure. Excuse me. Now we can party. Let's celebrate. And that's the result of idolatry that's so clear in our culture in the current moment. It's not enough For someone to behave as a homosexual, you need to have pride in it. You need to promote it. You need to celebrate it. And you need to coerce everyone else into celebrating it. It's almost like they have a guilty conscience that won't go away. And they need everyone and everything around them to continually reaffirm to them, you're okay. You're not in sin. You're not actually accruing judgment from a holy God. And so to pacify this innate sense of immorality that everyone has, these idolaters need to continually reinforce the lie that they're okay. Idolaters need the world to celebrate around them, to chant and to cheer in support of them in order to drown out the inevitable voice of God reminding them that they're actually not okay. Idolatry is not okay. Sinful desire and sinful action are not okay. Maybe you felt that tug. You've been living in a way that you think is right, in a way that you want to be right, but you can't shake a guilty feeling. That guilty feeling might just be the Lord gently, lovingly calling you back. To see that you're actually worshiping an idol of your own making. Consider these marks of idolatry and ask yourself if any of them seem familiar. Is it possible that your idol has deceived you? In what ways has your idol cost you? Does your idol rob God of honor and enslave you to perpetual worship and ritual obedience? Does your idol force you to pretend to be righteous, but actually has an underbelly of hate and hypocrisy that you would have never imagined? Is it possible that your idolatry is never content on its own, but it demands celebration and promotion in order to feel normal and right? If any of this sounds familiar, Then I want you to know the end of Exodus 32. You see, God is talking with Moses on the mountain, and a text says he looks down from the mountain and he sees them celebrating the golden cow. And he tells Moses in his anger, I'm going to consume them, I'm going to wipe them out and start over with a new nation. But Moses does something that is almost unimaginable. He tries to convince the all-wise God not to do it. He pleads with God on behalf of this sinful, idolatrous people. He acts as their mediator, their go-between, and he does so successfully. God decides not to wipe them out in judgment in that moment. Moses was functioning as a faithful priest But his work of mediation wasn't perfect. And it couldn't last forever. Israel eventually goes on to accrue for itself more wrath and more judgment, which we'll see in upcoming sermons. And not even Moses is enough to be Israel's high priest forever. But the Bible tells us there is another mediator. There would be another prophet to come who would be like Moses, but even better. This prophet would also be a priest and he would perfectly mediate the wrath of God against the people of God and he would be able to do it forever. And that mediator is Jesus Christ. And so if you find within yourself any hint of idolatry, if you see in the Hebrew story a little bit of yourself, then I want you to know that you can be forgiven of your idolatry because we have an even better mediator. Christ was the perfect one, the perfect atoning sacrifice, the perfect intercessor by whose work we can be acquitted of the guilt of our idolatry. That's the good news of the Bible. Though we are all condemned as guilty idolaters, we can be forgiven of that guilt, cleansed of the stain of that sin, renewed by the Holy Spirit, transformed into faithful followers of Jesus Christ, and turn from worshiping idols to properly worshiping the triune God in the power of the Spirit to the glory of God. Trust in that God. Be forgiven of your sinful desires and of your idolatry, and be restored to right worship of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For in doing so, you will find that God is faithful, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But we thank you for Christ, who is our perfect mediator, who provides a way for us to be forgiven and purified of our idolatry. Lord, help us to keep far from idols. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close by standing and singing the doxology together.